Hello and welcome back. For the next two episodes, I had the wonderful opportunity to chat with a friend, colleague and mentor, Professor Ian Hickey. Ian is rather a bigwig when it comes to the space of youth mental health, so it is truly not only an honour to work with him, but to also have him on the podcast for a chat. We've known each other for almost 10 years, both serving as National Mental Health Commissioners, circulating the same mental health space and and the conferences that go with that over the years. And we work together now at the University of Sydney's Brain and Mind Centre, where Ian is the co-director. Ian and I traverse many topics under the mental health experience and research base, from why he didn't follow in his father's footsteps and chose psychiatry over cardiology, his eagerness in educating us all on the physiological experiences that mental health can bring, from well-being to ill health, and the crucial role that technology plays in this next frontier of management, understanding, and help-seeking for our overall health as individuals within the larger system. Thank you to the University of Sydney's Brain and Mind Centre for sponsoring this episode. I hope you enjoy. Well, thank you for joining me, Ian. I want you to introduce yourself a little bit, but we have both got a long history together, culminating almost 10 years, I would say, which is kind of wild. But Sam, you must have been in primary school when we started. I mean, look, I'm still so young and so you. You are. Tell me about yourself and I guess like, your background, your qualifications, who you are, etc. So my professional self these days, I am a professor of psychiatry apparently. I'm a clinical psychiatrist by background, which means I'm a medical doctor who's specialised in psychiatry. And I make that point because often I would refer to myself, as many medical doctors would, as a physician rather than as a psychiatrist, meaning I'm strongly in the medical tradition of what goes wrong with people's health in general including their mental health. I don't belong to the world where your mind and your psychological health exist in some separate universe or in some old old Cartesian thing, often some spiritual world separate from your physical self. So I come out of a tradition of that. Uh, My dad was a professor of cardiology. I spent many years arguing with him. Why would you take an... Hey, Dad, why would you take an interest in a heart? Because it's just a dumb pump, you know, like... Whereas the brain and the mind is a fascinating thing. Of course, it's the central. And he had an interesting thing, which is when he was young, he was quite, I didn't know this till he was old, he was quite interested in psychiatry, thought he was quite good at it. It was kind of interesting. But he couldn't see a future in it because of its very descriptive nature and his career developed at the time of medical specialisation when people just went from being general physicians who sort of knew a little bit about everything but not nothing much to the era of what people would see as modern medicine, specialisation in heart disease, specialisation in infection. He was operating, being a doctor, before penicillin became common. And then you can imagine the arrival of penicillin and then the arrival of specialist medicine. Suddenly you could do stuff and you could have a specific interest in how the heart worked, or in his case, or in cancer, or in infection, and actually treating infection, not just watching people die from it, actually treating infection, you know, and in the heart world, that went on to heart surgery and moderating, all do all sorts of things that have resulted for many of us in longer and better lives, particularly like me, particularly as you age. And I must say, people like me, somewhat older men, of course, have been the biggest beneficiaries. We've had the greatest change in life expectancy as a consequence of all those things that have happened. But at the time that he was young, he couldn't see it happening in mental health. 
At the time I was young, oh boy, is that a while ago, I went, oh, come on, things have changed. We had started to be able to scan the brain with CT scanning, with brain imaging. People's interest in it in the 1970s and 1980s, particularly in the wider social world that influenced our mental health, was large. I used to spend a lot of my time in history and sociology and much more interesting things than just medicine. But, of course, it is the most fascinating kind of interaction between our physiology, the complexity of what goes on in our head, and the worlds the worlds that we all live in. So intellectually it's fascinating. But the other side of it, not so intellectually fascinating, and this I'll attribute much more to my mum than my dad. My dad was a more cerebral person. It's about who we are. It's about the humanity of who we are. And, of course, that's most obvious at times when people are in times of real crisis, when their capacity to function breaks down in an inexplicable way. I quite like the old term, a nervous breakdown, because the whole nervous system just stopped and people could not function. They weren't just having a bad hair day. They weren't just expressing psychological stress. It wasn't existential despair. They just couldn't function. They couldn't get out of bed. They couldn't get up. They couldn't relate to the world. They collapsed and then interestingly described as a collapse of the nervous system. Why did we change that? Oh, who knows? You know, we think we change the words to reduce the stigma, to improve the situation as if we improve understanding. I think in one sense to move from the generic nervous breakdown being anything that went wrong that meant a person couldn't function to trying to differentiate mental health and particularly mental illness is not one thing. In fact, the complexity of that still challenges us because the individual variation in what people are experiencing is very high and is a really big, we all have psychological distress, but we don't all have psychological disorders. We all get distressed at times in our life and that's normal and good. You should. If you don't cry, if you don't get happy, if you don't enjoy, if you don't get really angry at times, perhaps you're not alive. The rest of us are alive and we're in the world and we're dealing with our psychosocial and our social circumstances and our life stages and every other challenge, and we are emotional, and that's very good. As a slight tangent, at Church on Sunday, I was listening to a sermon about mental health and sort of the Christian experience and and God and all of those sorts of things, and they mentioned he's a psychiatrist by sort of study but he runs sort of like an organization now and he was saying that one of the the biggest problems he's seen is the over medicalization of experiences so kind of like what you were saying just just then about you know uh, people have those experiences like stress or anxiety or sadness or things like that but they may not be diagnosed with a an actual mental health disorder. Absolutely. And I think this is one of the continuously misunderstood and what drives me nuts most days is people saying that we are trying to medicalise normal psychological distress or normal emotionality. No, we're not. In fact, many of the people that I'm talking about, nervous breakdown, severe depression, have lost their emotionality. They actually are not expressing their emotionality. They've lost it. It's crippled. It's disabled. It's unable to function. It's not responding. I'm going to say, if we ever got off my professional self, what I actually love about my life these days is that I'm a grandfather. I'm totally into five-year-olds and under at the moment, you know, and the joy of life of being under five and the extent to which particularly my eldest grandson thinks that I'm really funny. Now, not many people in the world think that I'm really funny 
And I am feeding his belief in my sense of humour by providing as many presents and as many amusements as he can. But, you know, the life situation of how we respond to each other and the joy of life of under five-year-olds, you know, the expected capacity. We're not trying to medicalise or five-year-olds get angry. Five-year-olds have temper tantrums. Five-year-olds get distressed too and we cuddle them and we hold them and we try and regulate as they grow brains to regulate, become self-regulating. In other words, I'm totally into emotionality. In fact, the main probably, and it, I'd say I've got two things to add in, in mental health, if you like. One, it's a physiology. Mental health is health. You don't have, to come to your central point there, Sam, you don't have mental ill health unless you are physiologically perturbed, not just psychologically perturbed. It's a whole body thing. It's physical. The second bit I'd, I'd kind of say is emotion is in the driver's seat. People think they're rational. It's very interesting what you think about rational. In fact, Christianity is very interesting because it's a faith-based thing. You say, what's the, ra- what's the rational basis of belief in God? Don't. Just don't go there. I once had a fundamentalist Christian preacher, a friend, try to convince me of the rationality of the Christ story. And I said to him, buddy, don't give me the rational one. Just give me the, just give me the you believe it. I understand that. You believe it. That you experience it as that. Don't try and explain it because that actually tells you a lot about humans. Humans operate to their emotionality, their gut feeling, what they feel to be the case. And what we share in common with all other animal species, of course, and mammals in particular, is the sophistication of our emotional systems that drive fear, that drive attachment, that drive desire, that drive love, that drive most of our instincts for stuff. And if you think the rational guy is in the driver's seat, the cognitive planning, I'm here to say no. The emotional guy is in the driver's seat, particularly with his foot on the accelerator, the one that goes quickly. And then they go, hang on, stop, don't go through that red light. Can we not do that again? You know, the kind of thinking about it is what a mature brain develops. And what humans have that's quite different, of course, to many other species is a capacity to reflect on that, to learn from that, to articulate it, as we are doing now in language, and to plan and see the ramifications. But people think all the time, and I think, uh, you know, the downside of the Enlightenment was the idea that we were rational people, (laughs) you know, Whereas, whereas actually, of course, what they were reacting to, it's kind of interesting what you say, what they were reacting to was a kind of religious world or a faith-based world which was kind of irrational. <laughs> People just believe that things are happening. They're saying, well, there's a physical world out there. There really is physics and there really is chemistry and there's other stuff which can explain a lot of things which appear otherwise to just be put down to God or put down to unknown, including the control over disease, including things like mental ill health. Having said that, I've got to say, one of the things I think is misunderstood about religion since you raised it is the difference between spirituality and religiosity. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of American research about this. I am not a very religious person, but I'd just like to explain that, that spirituality is associated with very good mental health. Yes, that is a huge thing. Yeah, whereas being overly religious, which is probably what I object to, tends to be associated with not so good mental health. So it's kind of interesting, and spirituality, many people would argue, is the emotional connection with others. It's concern for the wider world. It's outside my own head. It's feeling part of the wider world, the wider universe, something bigger than me, something outside my own head. I say this because most of the direction of individual psychology for about the last 40 years has been to get further and further inside your own head. <laughs> and that's, that's that along something I've been part of myself, which is a lot of neuroscience, capacity to scan the brain, test our genetics, look at our internal physiology, see how the brain regulates everything else, has tended to be within the individual, within your own head, and a very complex machinery 
that sits underneath that. So in some ways, the science, both the neuroscience and the psychology, has tended to disappear into a place where humans don't really function. Humans don't really function inside their own head. We've only survived, we've only survived as a species and been very successful due to our social group function. Well, I was going to say we're innately relational beings, right? We wouldn't be here if we weren't. Just look how immature we are when we're born. Just look how long, how vulnerable we are. And we're not very fast. We're not very strong. We're not very, well, we're smart. We don't, you don't know if you know this, but, for example, monkeys see things and respond to things much better than us, much better visual memory than us. We see, see stuff. They have much better discrimination. Other, other, other animals have much better auditory or smell, all sorts of other senses. We're pr- on just about everything, we're very average and we're very vulnerable. But we've got this one big characteristic, social group function. We've got this capacity to function as social groups and outsmart all the others <laughs> collectively. Collectively, not individually. So when it comes to, obviously, psychiatry in the last 40 years looking inside the head, but in fact we actually exist outside our head, are we moving in research and and understanding and treatment to sort of pair the two or have one influence the other or understand the influence of one on the other? Yeah, we think so. When I was young, I used to be what was very overtly called a social psychiatrist who operated in that transactional thing. In fact, my original doctoral thesis is on the effect of marital relationships on the outcome of depression. The idea that you'd ever see anyone individually if they were married or in a relationship was nuts. You'd see them. There was, you know, conjoint therapy for people with anxiety disorders and a lot of other, you know, it's like seeing families and kids. The idea that you'd ever deal with everyone individually was a bit unusual and something happened in weird places like Vienna and New York, but the rest of the world was relational. It didn't have that deep individual psychoanalytic, is it all about your mother? No. It's about the world you're in and the people you're living with now. Sorry, Freud. Sorry. And <laughs> then in two worlds, the really important contributions of cognitive behavioural therapy and individual psychology went ahead, uh, some behavioural work went ahead, and then, of course, an explosion in neuroscience, a capacity to look inside the head. Now, before when my dad was doing this, the only way to look at a brain was to wait for people to die and then collect the brain after death and then go, well, what's this thing got to do with what they were just doing? Very hard to see. So the arrival of brain imaging in the in the 1980s allowed people to, for the first time to look inside the head. And then the arrival in the 1990s, something I was part of myself, of magnetic resonance imaging, MRI-type studies, to really look at the brain from the 1990s onwards. I say that because some of the most important work I was involved in at that stage had to do with looking, when I was young, at older people's brains and the extent to which their brain was changing that was associated with the onset of depression when they were older. And it's actually due to changes in the brain, due to vascular disease, et cetera, et cetera. Really different. Go, hang on, it is not because you've suddenly retired. It's not because you've suddenly got old. It's not because you've suddenly got as much back pain as I've got today. It's actually got to do with a small thing's gone off in a part of the brain that regulates this emotionality thing, and that's why you're suddenly depressed. And take home the picture and stick it on the fridge, and you can point to it. Look, you lot, it's not because I'm old and difficult or whatever, but that happened. There it is. It's quite small, but we never saw it before. Now, as I've got older, my work has moved away from taking care of old people towards young people, which I credit all the epidemiology people, people like Kathleen Merikangas, my close friend in the United States, people like Pat McGorry here in Australia, worldwide to say, look, genetic work I've been involved with, people like Nick Martin in Queensland for 30 years, adolescent study of twins in Queensland for 30 years, to say, you know, look, if you're really serious about depression and mood disorders, those things you say you're sad about, Ian, would you stop dealing with 50-year-olds? Would you go back to when it really starts? And becomes obvious. 
you know, 12 to 25-year-olds because like everywhere else in medicine, think cancer, think heart disease, earlier intervention results in better lives, fundamentally better lives, less premature death, greater effect. The earlier you deal with a problem effectively, the better the person's life. All of that research you've been doing for the previous 20 years, Ian, has been on people with chronic disease, and it isn't really about the disease. It's about the consequence of having had the disease. All the downstream bad effects, physiological effect on the brain, really bad for your brain, knocks off nodes, cell connections, really bad for your body, puts you at risk of premature heart disease, really bad in terms of risk, self-harm, complications, alcohol, drugs, everything, social relationships, productivity of life. I spend a lot of my time, as you know, Sam, talking about the, you know, I hate talking about it, the economic productivity. <laughs> What's the dollar cost of doing versus not doing? Well, all of that's in favour of early intervention. So when I was the CEO of Beyond Blue, there was a real emphasis there, okay, Ian, if you mean this stuff, you've gone from one being one of those blokes who takes the money to do the research to hand out the money, who would you hand it out to? So some of the really big programs when I went to do that job weren't in the areas that I cared about. So the two biggest programs that we funded when I was there, one was perinatal, new mums. Perinatal depression's got two things, the mum and the family, I must say, the family, not just the mum, but also the new infant, the kid growing up in that family. So transgenerational effect. So that was one of the big programs. The other was school-based programs. Okay, if this problem mainly has its onset in teenagers, where are they most? And then consequence of that, was the introducing of psychological care under Medicare in this country. Supported the people don't know that was a partnership between Beyond Blue, myself, Australian Divisions of General Practice, Australian Psychological Society. We had to shift psychological care there as well. So consequence of all that realisation in the 1980s and 1990s, we really needed to shift to an earlier age of intervention, to recognition. Uh, My career subsequently now is in youth mental health. And then something else, you know, Sam, you're involved in, really good happened technology technology is not the new devil it's not the new darth vader it allows us so the most fun i think i have in the world at the moment is to leave australia and go to places who are going to do things really differently they're not going to do the same things that we have done they're going to seize the opportunity of new technology to connect with people wherever they are to enhance their mental health diagnose a condition take actions now so as you know, I'm a bit of a proponent of got to learn how to use that stuff for the greatest advantage for most people, and it's transformative. I mean, unlike my dad and most of the physicians I know, and you'll have to just imagine this, this is a no-touch specialty. I'm waving my hands around here. Yeah. <laughs> we can talk. Quite we can interact. We, interact. we don't actually – I don't have to stick anything anywhere. We don't have to do anything. We can do a lot of stuff by just using video and audio and interaction and and other wearable devices, of course, these days. You know, recording your sleep-wake cycle, recording your physical activity. Increasingly, we record other things. You know how your eyes react to light. We record all sorts of things where you'll be able to do it on your phone. I can do this now for my heart rate. I can do it for all sorts of things. The technology. Just a couple of days ago at the Apple big sort of launch thing, they launched a new sort of health data, just like recording sleep and activity and heart rate and things like that. They launched a new element of their health sort of app, which is, I think it's called, it's like a check-in. So it allows you to, uh, it allows you to log your emotions and how you're feeling at that time, random times throughout the day. EMA, it's called EMA, ecological monitoring. Yes. 
Okay, how are you feeling now? And what's your pulse rate now? And is your pulse rate regular now? And how's that correlate with your mood? And the great thing is it's now feeding into a new app that I think these all release in September with their new iOS and new, all those updates, is it feeds into a new app called Journal, which culminates or sort of creates a picture of that day, your sleep the night before, uh, how active you've been, what you've lodged as your mood. And also, I think it takes into account your calendar and what you may have on that day. So it sort of creates this miniature picture of real-time data of what your gestalt life is on that day. Right, Sam. So I'd now like to ask you a question. Yes. Is that a truer picture of you? Is that a more personalised you than what you see from the average, no, I don't mean too rude about my friends here, the average doctor, the average psychologist, the average GP who's ever spoken to you? I feel like it's, see, this is where I think it technology plays a key role and this kind of a technology plays a key role is it arguably is a more intuitive and unbiased picture of you, at which then enables and and lubricates and enhances the care that a doctor or physician can then provide to you because you're providing this accurate or somewhat as accurate as you can get information and data. It demands their attention independent of their bias. Yes, exactly. So they, you know, like a, a, a psychologist or a counsellor or a therapist might be asking you these varying questions based on their speciality and might be reading certain things that may not be as big as an issue or see different things. And I hate to say it, we have to have a confession here. There's a very important concept in psychotherapy or psychological medicine, those who go into it, which is the therapist, the doctor, the psychologist should enter the room without memory or desire, meaning we all walk in to talk to you with both of those things with a preset idea from previous experiences of what we're going to do. And also we want you to fit in with our way of view of the world, okay? It's hard not to have bias, right? We all got it. Whether we know, whether you say you've got it, when someone says I'm unbiased, I was going, you know, don't think so, buddy. <laughs> so I say to people all the time, and I get out as I'm doing now, waving around my mobile phone, going, here's the clinic of the future. People go, I don't want to talk to that. That's not, that's not human. That's not what I go. No, 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 it is actually because you'll be able to take into now, just to give you some simple examples, in, in my world, because of the world I'm in, I know a number of young people who've had abnormal pulse rates. Their heart rates are unusual. And because they've seen me and they've got anxiety or whatever else, they go to see a doctor, GP, or they go to see a cardiologist. He says, oh, well, you see Professor Hickey and you're anxious. So what you've got is stress. Your heart's fine. It's normal because you're stressed. And then I go, hang on a second, just then you can now record your cardiogram, the, the electrical recording from your heart, and show that you do not have just an increased pulse rate, which is what you would have if you were anxious. You've actually got an abnormal heart rate. You've actually got a disturbance. Now take that back. Now I've had a funny interaction with my cardiology friends. I do. I still have friends in cardiology. I go, Ian, would you stop sending those people to me who really do have an abnormal heart that I've been telling for the last 20 years that they were stressed? Uh, and it's the admission of a... a- a mistake or an oversight well a bias yeah okay and therefore they dismissed out of hand they went for the more likely thing now, this is, now medicine's full of this okay it's true the person was seeing me for anxiety or depression the first thing was true that person was psychological distress however that did not exclude the fact that that person and and i'm the one 
who said to them, record that, because I know in that particular group there are people that actually have a different kind of problem. Now, this is happening in the metabolic area that we're in, another area, that people say, oh, yeah, well, all those kids have got problems with diabetes because you put them on those drugs and you made them overweight. Hang on there. Here's their actually fasting insulin before they put on weight. They had a problem. They only got later on. In other words, the testing has advanced. So what becomes important is the more you have information about you. Now, a lot of people think this is not personal. They think it's clinical, technical, technical, medical. No, 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 no. This is actually you. Let's face it, Sam. Who cares about Sam's health? Who really cares? My mum. <laughs> Thank God you've got one other. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Sam. I was going to say Sam. I, uh, that was my second one. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the hard reality. People might not know this, but myself and a man from rural health were more or less chucked out of Kevin Rudd's 2020 Health Summit in 2008 because we said, look, what people need is information they can track themselves as they move through the health system. At the same time, the Rudd government and everybody else was investing in my health record, which is not your health record, top-down, government-controlled record systems you can't interact with that often have inaccurate information and often don't have critical things, whereas actually people can record this stuff and every doctor you see, every health system you see, you need to take along because they've forgotten who you are, they don't know who you are, and they'll make up assumptions and they'll go, but no, 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 hang on, hang on, hang on. Here's what's happened before. Here's my heart rate. Here's my sleep pattern. Here's my activity pattern. This is me. This is very personal. This is me. This is not the average. It's not the bias you've got in your head. It's not the assumption you've got. This is me. And here's what didn't work before, so please don't tell me that again. And here's what is unique to me. Here on average, doctors and healthcare operate on average. On average, what we do is this. On average, what we do is prescribe that. So you go do this. You go, no, 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 I've done that. And I'm not average. Sam, you're a pretty unique individual. I'd say. I'd say so. It's me. It's yeah. me. I want you, all you healthcare providers, anyone else, to know it's me. I want to know what I can do, and I want, and I want you to help me to find my best self. True evidence-based intervention. Yes, the evidence is me. Yeah, the evidence is me, what data I'm recording in real time and tracking, and then it's me. And I don't care if I'm one in 100 or if there are five other people in 100 like me. Or they're a 90 like me. It doesn't matter. I only want to know, and it's, this is what's the difference between clinical medicine, like, you know, like inter- individual interactions between yourself and a health system, and something different, which is population health. Like, what do we do for everybody? Clean water, vaccination, reduce smoking, you know, like stuff we do because it's so important that it's likely to benefit lots of people. Improving the general health of kids reducing abuse of kids in schools, in families, in churches, anywhere, you know, like general stuff, right, which is a benefit, potentially a benefit to everybody. So we need to sort out the two. They're different things. And so part of my world is in the population health world. What should we do for everybody? In suicide prevention, during COVID, we should provide financial support and employment and housing and... Extra Medicare benefits. Well, a better Medicare system. Yes, exactly. A better Medicare system. We should definitely do that. All the things we need to do that are big system stuff or big population stuff, that's not the same as when you, as just you, go into a health system and what you will do next for me and how you will help me to be my best self. So backtracking a little, you've moved from, you know, in your 20s looking at the ageing brain and the older brain and and sort of what's led to that point and particularly depression and the physiological effects of all of that to shifting 
to the other end of the scale, the the youth mental health scale. And and you are the co-director of Brain and Mind Centre and you you lead the research in the youth mental health and technology, which is synonymous with young people. I mean, on average, young people spend anywhere between seven and eight hours a day on their phone, let alone what that means for TikTok. And- now, I, I do apologise to all younger people that we have to say youth mental health and technology, right? Of course, we're not saying that to young people. For the reasons you just said, that's bleedingly obvious. It's just youth mental health, yeah. But the health system doesn't think that. And, in fact, the wider media and social discourse is technology is now the cause. I'd like to say that, for example, youth suicide rates and mental health problems were actually worse in the 1990s before Facebook was invented. Interesting. And, in fact, the first suicide prevention programs we had in Australia were youth suicide preventions because of the crisis in the 1990s. Now, most people under 25 wouldn't be aware of that because they weren't here. (laughs) But I was. I was. And is that due to the community that social media can bring or is that and the connection or is that due to our, I guess, our new interventions or programs or early interventional? So just on those youth mental health rates, really interesting. So youth mental health problems were bad in the 90s. They got got better in the early 2000s, which is interesting because that's when Facebook started and many other things happened. But other social things were going on. But but things have got worse again in the last 10 years. So stuff is going on. A lot of the research has been around technology. My take on that at the moment is there are winners and losers in that world. So there are people who've enjoyed social connection, their, their mental health's improved, their world's improved. Because I, I, would, I would posit that the real thing that is having the biggest effect on mental health of young people in general is loss of social connection is loss of being part of community. Interesting, you said you go, you go to a church. You're a very unusual person. Not many people do that. Not many people go to a football club. Not many people go to a surf club. Not many people go to a youth group. Not many people actually physically participate in many social groups. Not many people have aunts, uncles, friends, places they can go, alternative houses they can stay in. So I would posit that's what's really changed in the developed world over the last period is now really problematic is the lack of wider social connection and support for young people during these critical ages. Now, technology is, you know, a benefit and a toxin in that because depending on the depending on situation, lots of people who could never connect before, lots of same-sex attracted people, lots of trans people, lots of people with communication difficulties could never find anyone like them in their local church or their local community or never, but they found them online and they're more connected. The classic stereotype is gamers, right? You know, living in mum's basement, playing their games, but they have a community. Yeah, right. And the other side of the coin is I think when we've seen this, and perhaps this is more of recent times, perhaps what some people would say is the Instagram age or the visual kind of bit. Others would say it's also the social media texting amplification age with other social platforms that are actually sitting around that. So... There are other things, I think, which are demonstrably toxic. And if you look at the groups who are most affected, it appears to be young women at younger ages. So I think, you know, and we've seen this in the eating disorder area and in other areas, I think there are other things going on that are relevant here. So I think the technology effects uh, continue to be important and we continue to need high scrutiny. We need to try and engage environments that maximise the good while potentially protecting against the bad. I mean, it's a, it's a huge social experiment that's going on. I mean, no doubt screens and particularly mobile devices have transformed our lives in many ways. On the other hand, elsewhere in the world I'm in, 
They're the biggest. That one of my other real preoccupations is health inequities, health equities. Who gets what? I spend endless time arguing with people in my own world about who they're seeing. To which my usual response is, "Who didn't you see? Who is not here? Who's not in the room?" To which the, my clinician friends sort of look at me funny, like, "Like who cares? Who's not here?" Yeah, we're here. <laughs> <laughs> Most young people. In fact, the reason, the other reason I got really involved in the youth area. Which I was involved in a lot of surveying that led to the introduction of psychological care under Medicare in Australia. And if you looked at who did not get psychological care, mostly, a lot of the advocacy was for middle-aged people like myself. Actually, young people missed out hugely on psychological care, as did old people, actually, interestingly. And this this led to the birth of Headspace. It led to a lot of other things. But, you know, it was clear, clearly, 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 young people on the whole were just left out. And the idea that general practice was going to fix it or whatever else was nonsense. Nobody was doing it. They were actively excluded from care and they were actively excluded from psychological care because they had to pay for it. So only a very small number of young people ever got the psychological care they needed. So I wouldn't mind just saying my work in the elsewhere in the world, and as you know, other projects I'm associated with, with, with now forget youth, we're back to children and young people, my preoccupation with those under five, in places like... Afghanistan of all places, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Namibia, Kenya, Indonesia, Malaysia, is all about connecting with people who have never been connected directly in their families through, guess what, mobile phones and mobile technologies because they are driving economics, they're driving education elsewhere in the world and really smart leaders in those countries aren't worrying about roads and bridges and clinics and, you know, whether they have a new decked-out headspace clinic or not. They're worried about whether they've got mobile phone coverage and can they connect education first and then health and then they can, from projects I'm served, can they help mums and families to provide care to their kids now directly in ways that all the international programs, aid programs, everything else we've ever done where we send boatloads or plane loads of professionals and we try and train people, never get anywhere near. Just imagine that we are still active in Afghanistan right at the moment. And in other places who've never had any contact with any of this kind of, but because people are doing it for economics, they're doing it for education, it's their livelihood. And your, your earlier point, Sam, clearly there's a generational effect. This is the world. And it's a world where inequities that we could never cross before can now be crossed. So when people say technology is only for the rich and the wealthy, I go, you're kidding. It's our biggest opportunity. So coming back to your, my earlier point, who gets locked out? Part of the reason I'm so enthusiastic about youth mental health and technology is to get a lot of those young people into care, effective care, self-care, other care, who never got any. And in fact, in Australia, I'm sad to say, have got an even worse deal over the last three to five years than they ever did because of the very high out-of-pocket costs of seeing care, the concentration of care in their wealthiest places. So those who've got money and resources and geography on their side have got more of their care. That's not to say those kids don't need care. Lots of those kids do need care. But lots more have got left out because we've allowed a system to develop which is so built around the needs or the business models of those who provide care and not. And technology is a huge disruptor. So as you know, Sam, I sometimes use the term about the Uberization of mental health care. Now, people think, people think I must have shares in Uber or something. <laughs> I, do, I do not. And I, no, I, you, I, just, you just love Uber. <laughs> <laughs> well, just think about what Uber did to the taxi industry. Just think what Airbnb did to the other. Just think about all these things to the airline industry. Just think about anywhere else these days. Would you interact with a system that doesn't know that you are you, doesn't know your history of you, and doesn't allow you, most importantly, 
to choose what you want and then to provide feedback about whether it was any good. Yes, I had I had Uber Eats last night and the meal came, the, the driver delivered it to the wrong house and the meal was cold and I was able to feed that back to Uber and I got a refund. Uber was like, no, this is not what we want to stand for as a service. We're going to pay reciprocity to you because we value you. Yeah, yeah, it's really important. And really importantly, this drives those systems to be better. You know, who wants to be known as an Uber driver with a two-star rating? In fact, Uber will just get rid of you. <laughs> Hopefully that. <laughs> Can you imagine? We're sending Ian, the two-star driver, to pick you up. No, you're not. <laughs> no, nope. But imagine if we, so under this Uberization of the medical industry, imagine if we were able to put stars on physicians. Totally. Now, you know, Sam, because you were on the National Mental Health Commission with me, there was a reason, although I think, I might have gone there a little earlier. When There's a reason when I was very kindly, a really nice person, Julia Gillard, rang me in 2012 and said, would you do this thing, join the National Commission? I'm all about data and accountability. I went, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I was thinking at the time, we got these things called mobile phones, well, just, you know, go ask people. Just put in your four-star rating, your five-star rating. We'll have, we'll have thousands of, you know, data points about what's good, what's bad, what's not working, blah, 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 blah. Now, about five minutes after I arrived there, National agencies went, no way, we are not doing that. People don't know. People don't know what they need and we're going to tell them and people don't know what they're experiencing and not only that, we're like the taxi industry. We've got it locked up. We have no way we're handing this over to this, you know. No, thank you. No, There's thank no you. way we're dying. That's not where we're going. You know, it would all be wrong. Go, well, Custer's last stand of medical industry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Interestingly, we now we now have a new health minister, Mark Butler, who was the mental health minister 10 years ago. Excellent thing. And he's come back and went, hang on a second. What happened while I was away? And if anything, some of these things like equity and access seem to have got worse. And we've had COVID. We've got changing demography we talked about. And then his second question is, has the medical industry ever heard of digitisation? Every other industry, every other service industry has been trained. <laughs> no, they haven't. <laughs> Has been transformed. I got a very no, not Mark Butler. I got a very senior. I got an email the other day from a very senior health official, not the minister. Said Ian, 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 a man about my age. Goes Ian, it's clear that technology will revolutionise care, healthcare in general, and probably mental health care, but not in this country, and not in your oh. life, and not in your lifetime, because we are so fixed oh. now. I can tell you, Sam. I have a very famous paper I once once wrote uh, back in two thousand and nine. And it was called Not In Your Lifetime. You are, yeah, these papers are really brilliant. Like, yes, this is not an episode of Yes, Minister. They're fantastic. Yeah, so what happened in 2009, uh, I was asked to reflect on how did we ever get uh, psychological services under Medicare? Because a very close friend of mine at the time, a professor of general practice, a guy I really like, he said, Ian, that's exactly what we should do. This was back in the 2000s, after we looked at all this work in general practice. He, sa- he said, look, that's exactly what we should do. Of course, we should have psychological care in Medicare, but not in your lifetime. It won't happen. The medical teams will resist it. It won't happen. We're all, you know, AMA or everybody else will be against it. We can't let the psychologists in, blah, 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 blah. And in 2001, the Howard government, I must say to the credit, of the relevant ministers then at the time and others, it did happen. I must say the credit of John Howard, actually, at the end of the day. And Michael, Michael Woolridge, their health minister, took he, took this, took data from us and said, 
you know what? We should do this. And John Howard, John Howard said, okay, that's really what we should do, you know? So that was in 2001 and it was called Better Outcomes before it was called Better Access. Now, I wrote about this in 2009 because the belief amongst medical professionals or the belief that we just can't change things is part of the problem. When, when things change, and Mark Butler now makes this point, why it's so important to do what we're doing today to talk about this with the wider world. When the community's need exceeds that of the professions, guess who gets to vote, actually? <laughs> Thank God we have compulsory voting in Australia. You know, vote. Just remember, everyone, this year, vote. Vote in the referendum. Vote in an election. Vote. That's what politicians, unlike doctors and professionals and professors, Politicians come and go on the popular vote. If something really needs to be done, and now I say that at the moment because there's a Labor government that cares about equity, there's a minister who cares about mental health, there are the TU independents in each of the areas, even though they're in the wealthiest parts of the country, they know mental health services aren't that good. We, as you know, Sam, spent a lot of time in rural and regional Australia, in central Queensland this week, in Rockhampton, you know, and the struggles of Indigenous people and people in regional settings in the North Coast. We can change things. But we need the community voice to be louder and more direct than the professional resistance. The taxi industry didn't want change. The hotel industry didn't want change. They hate competition. What they really hate is consumer feedback. 